Uh, our scripture reader today is Kim Silbor, and she will be reading Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Uh, please stand in honor of God's word. Listen as I read. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. So we are in a series called Presence, and um, it's a, a four-week series, kind of. So we're, we're going to add a week, and it's actually going to be a five-week series. So I know that there are four circles up there, but just imagine that there's a fifth circle. Um, and uh, part of the reason uh, was, is that uh, next Sunday is, is Father's Day. And, uh, and so we're going to take the opportunity, it seems like it's, uh, you, you, you could say you should have thought of this a long time ago. I get it, thank you. Um, but, but, you know, this series started off with the incarnation and the consideration of Jesus coming to this earth and coming to be physically present with us. Week two was Ascension Sunday, and so we considered the reality of Jesus actually leaving earth to be present with the Father and what the significance of that event was. Uh, last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, and so we considered the coming of the Spirit, uh, God sending the Spirit, and you know, Jesus said, it's good that I go because uh, until I go, the Spirit won't, uh, you know, I, can't, I don't send the Spirit. So when I go, the Spirit will come. And in Acts chapter 2, as we looked at last week, we saw the coming of the Spirit. Uh, today is Trinity Sunday, and, uh, and so we're going to consider the, the Trinity. And then next Sunday, uh, we are going to, uh, we're going to be in this exact same passage, Matthew chapter 3 next week, and we're going to consider uh, the, the Father, uh, God the Father, and uh, next Sunday is Father's Day, so we will. Uh, it's a, it, it dovetails uh, nicely. Um, the goal of this series, uh, as I've said pretty much every week, is for us to see the links that God has gone to, uh, in in order to create a world where His presence is more fully experienced uh, by by you and me, by all by all of us. And so um, uh, I hope that as these weeks have unfolded, there's just at least been an invitation to recognize uh, the, the the significance of the way that God's uh, been been. Uh, so, so committed to his presence being part of the story uh, of, of your life, of the life of the world. Uh, we've looked at, uh, briefly referenced Exodus 33 each week, and that's just, a, I love that account because in, it, it's, in, it's in the early days of Israel. Israel's been rebellious and uh, kind of stiff-necked and unwilling to, to obey and listen to God. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's, it's not going well. And Moses knows it's not going well. And God certainly knows it's not going well. And it's, uh, there seems to be like every bit of evidence in the world that God should just like, you know, start over, like, get, you know, chuck these people. And so Moses goes to God and he says, um, okay, but look, if you don't come with us, then let us just let us die. Le leave us here in the, de in the desert. He says, if your presence isn't going with us, then it's really not worth going on. And uh, a compelling question for me anyway, is how do you get to the place where it would be better to die than to not have God. To, to think about the presence of God like that, to say, if your presence isn't with me, then it's not worth living this day. 
Now, there's all kinds of reasons why you might say it's not, living worth this, it's not worth living this day. There's all kinds of reasons why you might not want to get out of bed in the morning. But how do you get to the place to where the reason would be that if, if God's presence wasn't there, life wouldn't be worth living? And, and I'm trying to suggest through this series that seeing the glory of God's presence reveals it as the most essential thing in the whole world. And, and, and to see that God is at work in the world to bring his presence, to, to actually allow us to have access to him. And he's been doing it in a variety of ways. And, uh, and to, to, to put it right, right before us. And then last week to actually see that he brings it right into us uh, through the, the, the indwelling of, of the spirit of God. So as I already said, today is Trinity Sunday. Uh, and you know, Matthew 3 is really like a launching point. And I, we're going to be in that passage next week. But the reason why it's a helpful text, uh, I mean, there's obviously it's, it's in the Bible and it's scripture. But, but you'll, you'll notice in those verses that um, you, you see all three uh, persons of the Godhead uh, in one passage. And there's a few passages in the Bible where this happens, but it's just a very pointed one. You see the, the, that Jesus, the, the Son of God, is in the water getting baptized. You see that the Spirit of God descends like a dove. And then you hear from heaven, the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son. And so it's a very Trinitarian passage. It's a passage where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are, are evident and they are on display. And so we'll be in that text a little bit more directly next week. Um, but both this week and next week, uh, I'm, I'm going to be standing on the shoulders, and this is true every single Sunday when, when I preach any time, but I'm going to be standing on the shoulders of some, some great theologians um, this, this doctrine of the Trinity uh, has developed over the course of centuries. And uh, one of the first theologians to really give time and attention to this is a, a theologian in, in the, around the year 150 uh, named Tertullian. Uh, a couple hundred years later, there was a council, the Council of Nicaea. And the Council of Nicaea is, uh, it, I mean, we're talking about it almost 2,000 years later because it was such a historic moment uh, where a, a large group of theologians had gathered to clarify what does the, I mean, a number of things, but one of the things was what does the Bible have to say about this idea of the Trinity? And if you're looking for some theological knockdown drag out, you, you can go read about Arius and Athanasius. And as they argued and had their various viewpoints and the Council of Nicaea coming to a, uh, a clear conclusion on the nature of the Trinity. And then there's two theologians who are more, more recent, who are still alive. Uh, one's name is Fred Sanders. And Fred Sanders is uh, on faculty at Biola out in California. And uh, yes, Lou's, Lou's alma mater. Um, and he has done some phenomenal work on the Trinity. Uh, and then the other author is uh, Michael Reeves. Uh, and he's in the UK. Uh, and he wrote the book um, Delighting in the Trinity, which I think is available on our book wall uh, today. And so if you want, uh, it's, a, it's, it's the, a lot of people would say that it is the best little book on, on the Trinity. And, uh, and so Michael Reeves. So those guys have been super helpful for me over the years in just thinking about, about the Trinity. So today, I hope to offer uh, maybe a, like a, a, you know, this, this rich and beautiful doctrine, somewhat of a, uh, some handholds, some of a way for us to, to grab onto it and to, and to be thankful for it, to actually celebrate it and to, to, to worship the, the God who is a Trinity. Uh, so it's a little bit of a different format than normal. Uh, we're having six, six points. Uh, they all won't be normal length. I, I'll try to uh, be aware of the fact that there's a service that starts at 11. So. <clears throat> but the first one is this. Um, God wants us to know about the Trinity. God wants us to know about the Trinity. So if you were to say, what is the Trinity? Like, what does the doctrine of the Trinity teach? 
It teaches that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. Matthew chapter 3 would be one place where we see it. Ephesians chapter 1, throughout the Old Testament, there's hints here and there. A handful of passages that that put it in one place. But largely, we're, we're pulling from various texts to assemble this idea that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. In other words, God is one in essence and three in persons. You, and you may know this, but the, the Bible never, ever uses the term Trinity, not, not one time. The Bible never refers to God as a Trinity. So then how do we know about it? Well, it would be right to conclude that we know about it because God wants us to know about it. Now, there's a verse in the Old Testament that it actually, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it seems like it's used a lot in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a verse that says, the secret things belong to the Lord. And so every time we get stumped, it's real easy to just go to Deuteronomy 29, 29 and be like, well, the secret things belong to the Lord. So, uh, you know, he didn't promise he'd tell us everything. Um, and, and while that is true, uh, there are certainly secret things that belong to the Lord, many, many things that belong to the Lord. Uh, apparently, the idea that God is a tri-unity is not among the secret things. Because if it was, he wouldn't be putting it on display. He wouldn't be talking about it. You and I wouldn't be talking about it. We wouldn't know about it. I would think that there are some things about God that we don't know. Like, I'm, I'm pretty confident that that's a true statement. But God being three in one is not one of the things that he's hidden from us. It's actually one of the things that he wants us to know. We know about it because he wants us to know about it. Uh, that same verse goes on to say that the things we know, like, they belong to us. And so the secret things are the Lord's, but then the things he puts on display, like, they're for our good. They're for us to hold on to. They're for us to, to celebrate. And so as, as God on the pages of the Bible reveals himself, he wants us to know that he is three in one. Yes, it's a mystery. You know, one plus one plus one normally equals three. So it's a mystery because in this case, one plus one plus one equals one. But it's something that God wants us to know about. Uh, Michael Reeves, the author I was just referencing a second ago, uh, the quote will be on the screen behind me, but this is, this is what he says. If you hear the phrase, God is love, boy, those, those three words could hardly be more bouncy. They seem lively, lovely, and as warming as a crackling fire. But God is a trinity? No, H- hardly the same effect. That just sounds cold and stodgy. And he goes on to say that he understands why we would respond like that. Um, but he thinks that that's misplaced. So yeah, sure, the the Trinity could certainly be presented as he calls a fusty and irrelevant dogma, but the truth is that God is love because God is a Trinity. Next week, we're going to talk more about God's love, especially from the perspective of God the Father and how much he wants us to know that he is a God of love. But for today... Well, you know, certainly I just referenced that that's the best little book. Delighting in the Trinity is the best little book because people write hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages about the Trinity. So, you know, we certainly cannot fully explain these things today. But I do want to throw a few things out that offer how practical the Trinity is. For example, what I just referenced. Why is God love? Because God is a Trinity. Look, in order to love, there has to be someone to love. There has to be a place for that love to go. So, so there is no way that God could eternally be a God of love unless there was some relationship. 
Three persons in the Godhead gives us the answer to how it is that God is eternally a God of love. The Bible actually says that God is love. How could that ever be if he was singular? How could that ever be if there was not a relationship for him to invest in? Uh, why is God love? Because, of, because of, uh, God is eternity. Why can we be saved? We'll touch on this a couple times during this sermon, I think, but uh, because God is a trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all play crucial and distinct roles in the work of salvation. And then how are we able to live the Christian life? Man, the Bible's answer is through the trinity. That again, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all play crucial and distinct roles in our growth. So God reveals this to us because he wants us to know it. Number two, this one will be quick. The doctrine of the Trinity is not illogical. So it's complicated, it's complex, it could even rightly be explained as a paradox, but it is not illogical. This doctrine doesn't teach that God is three persons in one person. That would be illogical. It does not teach that there are three beings in one being. That would be illogical. It does teach that God is three persons in one being. And so there are three kind of crucial truths that are related to the, the, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are distinct persons. Each person is fully God. There is only one God. That, that, is, that is hard to understand, but that is not illogical. Fred Sanders says this, God's triunity transcends our rational comprehension and he suggests it's partly because we have no other examples of anything like it. We just don't have anything else like it. But it doesn't violate logic or make a claim that is nonsensical. And that leads to number three. God is more. Uh, both of these authors give the indication, and Fred Sanders is a little bit more overt about it, but that you should honestly, you should give up looking for an illustration on the Trinity. You should just stop. He says, man, people are always trying to come up with stuff, and they, they work at it, and, you know, like one would be an egg, and you say, you know, an egg has a shell, an egg has a white, an egg has a yolk, or an apple has skin, it has the fruit, and it has the core. He's like, but they, but they don't really work because God doesn't come in parts like that. And so, in, in other words, he actually says, the more you, you wade into these analogies, you begin to realize that they're vastly more unlike God then they are like God. And so Fred Sanders says, maybe it's better to just stop trying to come up with an illustration. God's triunity is one of those divine realities that has no parallel, like being the creator of everything out of nothing. We don't, there's no parallel for that. We, there's not a parallel for that. Being omnipotent, all-powerful is what that means. There's not a parallel so some things about God, when we talk about the doctrine of God, it is good to have at least two categories. God is like us. There's attributes about God that we reflect and that we can relate to, that we see in some way in humanity. And then God is not like us. And there are attributes of God that just are not, they're not communicable. They're not part of our story. They're bigger than us. They don't have any parallel. And so this idea that God is just more, he's just more. We said that God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means that there's only one God, but that he exists in three persons. Now, you could maybe say that that's the easy part. Because when you read through the Bible, you find that out. 
You read through the Bible, you run into the Father, you run into the Son, you run into the Holy Spirit. And because God is three persons, we call God the Trinity. But God is one being in three persons. Not three gods, just one God. Not one person, three persons. So what what does that mean? What's it like? Well, a a way to maybe think this through is to think about yourself, like myself. I, I am one being who is one person. I'm not a trinity. I'm just a unity. God is more than any of us. We, I think we want to admit that openly. He's one being in three persons. So a good way to think about this is the idea of being lonely. Probably most people in this room can relate to the feeling of being lonely. When you are by yourself, you feel lonely. You might even be around other people and feel lonely. But when you're by yourself, you feel lonely. And you feel lonely because you're by yourself. God's more than that. God is one being, but he is never, ever lonely. It is not possible for God to be lonely. Now, that's, that's me individually. Now think of a group of three. If you have three people, they're, they're a group, but they're not one being. They're three people who are three beings. They're a group, and they can cooperate together. They could do things together. But they're never one being. You, you could actually replace one of the people and, you know, with another person, and you'd still have a group of three. So, so think about it this way. God is more three than just what I am, and he's more one than what any group is. God is just more. Thinking about one person kind of helps us. Thinking about a group kind of helps us. But the best way to conclude this is it's just that God is he's always more. So if the egg thing helps you with your children, you know, okay. But don't stop there. Like, God is more. God, God is more than that. He's just beyond our ability to fully grasp. And one of the ways that the writers of the Bible, that one of the ways that they use to praise God, and you, you see this in the Psalms a lot, but you see it in other parts of the Bible too. They'll say something like this. Who is like the Lord our God? And a lot of times they don't answer it because it's a rhetorical question. The point is, no one is like him. Part of the way that the Bible writers invite the people of God to worship the God of heaven is to actually declare, who is like the Lord? No one. No thing. Nothing. The answer is, don't even give an answer. It's rhetorical. Who is like our Lord? Nobody is. He's more. He's more than an egg. He's more than an apple. He's more than an individual. He's more than a group of people. He's more than all of that. Here's one more way the Trinity is is more than you can imagine. We know that God the Father sent God the Son to save us and that God the Holy Spirit lives in us when we believe on Jesus. That means that God is above us, with us, and in us. The Trinity has us surrounded. And that's a pretty beautiful picture. So those questions that I mentioned a second ago. Why is God love? Because God is a Trinity. Why can we be saved? Because God is a trinity. How are we able to live the Christian life? Through the trinity. Look, God is just more. He is is just more than our brains can comprehend. Number four. This will be a quick one too. God has always been a trinity. God, God would have been a trinity even if nothing existed but God. So in, in other words, 
The doctrine of the Trinity teaches us about God's eternal, essential being. So whether God ever took action, we, we, we believe the Bible is revealing to us that God is the initiator, that God took action, that God was in eternity past, and that at some point, God decided to take action. He initiated. But this is saying that whether God ever took action to create or to redeem or to do anything at all, whether he did that or not, the Trinity would still be what it is. God would still be a Trinity. God did not need to do anything to make the Trinity. It's actually who he is. Number five, the Trinity is always bundled with the gospel. And this might, might be helpful for, for some of you. Um, and it, it was, it's, it's helpful for me to, to think about the work of the Trinity in this way. Um, it's, the doctrine of a, of, um, it's the doctrine of who God must be if salvation is what we think it is. And so you, you can't parse this down and take little bits and parts of God if salvation that the Bible teaches us is if we're rightly understanding it. God has to be a trinity if salvation is what we think it is. You could even say it this way. The reason we know about the trinity is because the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit to save us. Like, that's the story of the work of the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel. That, 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 that this, this action of sending, that if that never happened then there wouldn't be anything to, to, to understand. There wouldn't be anything to grasp. God did not reveal his triunity first by informing us of facts about it. Do, do you notice that? Genesis chapter 1 is not a doctrinal statement where there's a whole bunch of bullet points so that you can get all the details. It starts a story. So, so more than facts, God made it known through acts. The, the, the acts of sending Jesus, that's the incarnation of the Son, where the Son took on a human body. The sending of the Spirit, where the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 floods into the world in a unique way and indwells the hearts of those who have turned to Christ by faith. The revelation of the Trinity took place in the great story, which God then later explained. And for the last 2,000 years especially, Theologians have been working hard to discern what does this story tell us? What are the dynamics at play in this story? And how do they reveal to us who God is? Maybe you could put it this way. Fred Sanders suggests this. If you describe the Trinity and then you have to add on the fact that the Trinity saves you, you probably didn't do a good job of, of, of explaining the Trinity. They, they are innately tied together. The nature of the Trinity is a, is, is a reality of God's saving work. A few seconds ago, I asked the question, why can we be saved? And the answer is because God is a Trinity. If you were to take the time and dive into that question, you'll see. You'll see that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all play crucial and distinct roles in the work of salvation. One more note on this. This is also why we don't have to choose between being Christ-centered or being Trinity-centered. 
Um, there was a, a little movement. It didn't gain a whole lot of traction, and I think that's, honestly, I think it's probably good. But there was a, a little movement a few years ago where it was like, you know, everybody's talking about being Christ-centered, or everybody's talking about being gospel-centered, but we should be Trinity-centered. And I kind of think it was just an effort to get a whole new wave of publishing so they could write books that were now Trinity-centered books instead of gospel-centered books. But the reason why I don't think that that fad took off is because you don't need to pit them against each other. You don't have to pick between being Christ-centered or gospel-centered or being Trinity-centered. And the reason for that is because Jesus Christ is Trinity-centered. The, 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 whole, the whole work of his life, the, the teaching that he offered, the, 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 the story of Jesus is a Trinity-centered story. Jesus is right there in the middle of the Trinity. He is often referred to as the second person of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is right there in the middle of the Trinity as the Son who is sent by the Father and who's been filled with the Holy, who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there's this work of Jesus in the world where Jesus himself was constantly aware of the reality of the Trinity, constantly aware of the work of the Father, constantly aware of the work of the Spirit. If you focus on Jesus properly, if you focus on the gospel properly, you'll find yourself focusing on the Trinity. I, I think it's right to say that the Bible bundles the Trinity and the gospel. Jesus is, is the most visual component. You know, sometimes I, I think of Jesus, you know, my, my daughters are getting their yearbooks as the, you know, the school year is coming to an end. And when you look through the yearbook, what is the picture that is listed beside your child's name? It's not a picture of their foot. It's not a picture of their hand. It's a picture of their face. It, it's, it's a visual representation that most people associate with that person. And when you read the New Testament and you begin to see what God did in Christ, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he point blank says it. He says, you want to see the glory of God? Look at the face of Christ. Christ is this visual manifestation. He is God with us. It is right and good that Christ is, in a sense, the most focal point. Paul says it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You want to see the glory of God? Gaze at the face of Christ. Look at who Christ is. Why would Paul say that? Because in Christ, you find the Trinity. Those aren't separate things. You're not, you're not, you're not failing to think about, well, you could be, but you don't have to be failing to think about the Trinity when you focus on Christ and his gospel. The Bible bundles the Trinity and the gospel together, and so should we. We should do that too. Last, take a little bit more with this one, a little bit more time. You're already soaking in it. And I, over the course of this week, I think, I think this just became kind of my favorite one. Like, you're, you're already soaking in it. Whether you have been paying attention or not, the doctrine of the Trinity is actually suggesting that everything about the Christian life works only because there's a Trinita Trinitarian reality underneath it. That's the only reason that any of it works. I'll give you maybe the most front-facing one. Prayer. Think about how the Bible teaches us to pray. How Jesus taught us to pray. We, we come and we approach God we, we come before God the Father in Jesus' name 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we come to God the Father, and we don't come in our own name. We come before the Father in the name of Jesus. That's why maybe you grew up, uh, if you grew up around people who prayed, maybe this is your own practice, but it is a very common way to finish your prayer to say, in Jesus' name, amen. I lift this prayer before the Father in Jesus' name. I'm, I'm standing there not in the power of my own name, not in the significance of my own name. I'm standing there in the, in the name of Jesus. And then who, who, by whose power? I mean, Romans chapter 8 makes this super clear. That our prayers, are, are that the Spirit is at work to edit our prayers, to, to translate our prayers. It's the power of the Spirit, not our power that we pray in. This is true even if you're not consciously thinking about it. That the Bible is indicating this is how prayer works. That our prayers are laid before the Father in heaven in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So every time you pray, the Trinitarian dynamics are at play. Whether you're conscious of it or not, you're already soaking in it. So this, along with that gospel bundle, man, it frees us from feeling like we have to talk about the Trinity all the time. It frees us from thinking that I've always got to bring up the Trinity. I, I don't want anybody to be offended up there. I better make sure I say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or, you know, who knows? Like, I, I, you know, just, I'll cover my bases. No, it frees us from that. There's this recognition that all of the Christian life, all of the Christian life functions because there's a Trinitarian dynamic at play underneath all of it. When you pray, the Trinity is at work in your prayers. The doctrine of the Trinity is the vast, deep background, one of these authors said. It's the vast, deep background behind all of our theology. And when we explicitly talk about it, we make a comprehensive claim about who God is. But here's the point. There's a lot of things where the background stays the background, and it's okay. There's all kinds of things. If you're into film, uh, you know, whether it's still pictures or movies, there's all kinds of work that's put into lighting. You know how much work's put into lighting? It's never the focal point, or it's not usually the focal point. It doesn't become the main thing, but it has a massive, it, it, a massive impact on the quality of the picture. So there's all kinds of things that are background that actually stay background. And that enables us to say particular things about Jesus to say particular things about how we grow, particular things about the cross or the Spirit of God or God the Father without always feeling like we have to make the big picture explicit. And if that makes you nervous, I got better news for you. It's really how the New Testament teaches the Trinity. The New Testament is, is in a sense, assuming the Trinity all the time. The New Testament does not feel the pressure to always be like, we said Jesus, but you know, Father and Son, Spirit, too. Like, it's confident and comfortable recognizing that the, the, the Trinity is at work in all of it, in every bit of it. You're already soaking in it, even if you're not paying attention to it. Now, go ahead and talk about the Trinity. Like, that would be good, too. That's an appropriate thing to do. Think about it. Read books about it. The more you know about the Trinity, it's only going to serve your soul. It's only going to enhance how you understand the work of God in the world. 
And when the new kingdom comes and we are actually in the presence of God, we're going to find out that our efforts were pretty shallow in trying to figure it out. But it's worth your time to try. So, so, so talk about the Trinity. Learn about the Trinity. You know, go for it. Like, that's good. Praise the Trinity. Feel free to use the word Trinity. But don't feel like you have to focus mentally on this gigantic doctrine at all times in order to be a good Christian or to make sure that you don't get accused of not being a Trinitarian. Now, look, Trinitarian is a marker of the Christian faith. A God who is three in one, that is unique in all the world religions. This idea of, of, of God as, as, as triune, it is fundamental. It influences absolutely everything. I'm just simply trying to leave a little bit, relieve a little bit of the pressure that you might feel thinking that you have to talk about it all the time explicitly. So if you've been rescued by Jesus, you got picked up by the Trinity and brought into God's own fellowship. How incredible is that? You know, C.S. Lewis has this idea that um, I know for some of you it's been quite compelling, and it has been for me too. But he refers to it as the inner ring or the inner circle. And, uh, you know, he, he has his own way of, of sharing that illustration. But the, the, the gist of it would be, you know, the, the NBA finals are, are going on right now, so it's kind of like the end of the, the basketball year. And, uh, you know, I, I played basketball all the way uh, through, through high school and, and, and loved it. <clears throat> and if, if you've played basketball, you could substitute any sport but, you know, if you're, if you're a ninth grader, you know, and you made JV, it is really a common experience to look at, you know, my, my, my freshman year, I made JV, and I sat the bench the entire season as a JV player, the entire season. Uh, I mean, I played very, very little. <clears throat> and so I had this vision. It's like I made the team, but then it's like, what if in 10th grade, what if I was a starter? What if I could start? Well, I did, and I got to start my sophomore year. And then my same pattern the next, my junior year, I got varsity. I sat, I sat, sat the whole year in, in my varsity. And then uh, my senior year, I started on my varsity team. But you know what? As soon as I made starter, I started thinking about, okay, well, you know, I made the team. Now I'm a starter. Wouldn't it be great to be captain of the team? Like, I'm a senior. This is my swan song. I've played a lot of basketball. Like, wouldn't it be sweet to be the captain? And then, you know, like, you get to be one of the co-captains. And then the season gets started, and then it's like, man, like, this, is, this, this would be really, really great if I could be, like, all state. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that recognition be awesome? Wouldn't it be great to be in that club? Wouldn't it be a cool thing to put on your resume to say, to say you're all state? Well, that never happened. But, but... <laughs> But for those who it did happen, they make all state. And then they begin to ask, man, wouldn't it be cool to play in college and like get a scholarship to play in college? Wouldn't that be a cool thing to have on my resume, to, to be a person who got a scholarship to play basketball in college? For those who get it, what then happens? Man, what if I was one who got drafted in the NBA? Wouldn't that be, I mean, all my friends, all my family, they would like, who gets to do that? Then you make the NBA, and it's like, what if I actually made the roster? Like, I made the final cut, and I was on an NBA team. And then what if I was a starter? And then what if I was an all-star? And what if I was all-NBA? See, C.S. Lewis uses this idea, and he says there's something in the human heart that thinks that there's always another inner ring. 
there's always another level. There's always another club that if you could just get invited into that club, that would make all the difference. But as soon as you get invited into that club, there's another club. And then you want to get in that club. And then there's another club. Here's the beauty of the Trinity. Listen, if you've been scooped up by Jesus, if you've put your faith in Christ to rescue you from your sin and bring you to the Father, then you have been brought into the Trinity, which is the ultimate inner ring. And there's not another one. There's not another level. It doesn't get better than this. You are welcomed in to the eternal relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the love and the joy that overflows in that circle is accessible to you because you have been redeemed by the work of the Trinity. You've been brought to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we're going to look at at how this love plays out some. But listen, learning about the Trinity is a matter of learning the deeper reasons why this Christian life works. What this Christian life offers you, and it offers you a seat at the ultimate table. There is no more inner ring than the Trinity. It's the core of all cores. And the gospel says it's yours by faith alone. It's yours by running to Jesus and letting him bring you to the Father. Letting him reunite you with the God who created you. Bringing you into fellowship with the Trinity. So as you come to the table today... I want you to think about the fact that you have been welcomed. Think about it as it's it's a meal. We refer to it as a meal. Think about a table. And you've been invited into the ultimate table. You're seated in communion, in fellowship with the eternal trinity, the ultimate inner ring. Now, again, for our communion, a little different today. There'll be some music. Come when you're ready. Come at your convenience. And you can go out the outside rows if you want to. But just the circle goes like this. And so if you'll come down the main aisles and out to the tables and then back to your seats, okay? If our servers will please come, let's, uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for this incredible work of yours of bringing us into the inner circle. That the work of the Trinity in the message of the gospel is on display in such significant ways at every little turn, at every idea of our theological spectrum, at every page of the Bible, This affirmation that your greatness and your grandness is actually something that you want us to see. And so, God, we we know we can't grab it in full, but would you help us to hold on to these pieces that we we can make sense of? Would you help us to be in awe? Would Would you help our hearts to just shout out that question? Who is like our Lord? Who is like our God? Man, nobody. So God, we thank you for this great work. We thank you for the gift of of the rescue that you provide through your son, Jesus, and the power of the Spirit. We thank you for seating us uh, at the table with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.